All right. Well, good evening, everyone. We are so glad to have you with us for the ACB Diabetics in Action Community Call. Um, this evening, we have Abby Chesterson joining us from Pennsylvania. Um, Abby, could you share with us what your title is? Certainly. Just so yeah. I don't get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I am, um, by training, I am a registered dietitian um, and I'm also a certified diabetes care and education specialist. Um, I am currently the director of the Diabetes Education Center at Pennsylvania Hospital, which is in Philadelphia and part of the University of Pennsylvania medical system. If everyone could welcome Abby tonight, what we're going to do is Abby's going to speak to us. She was with us last month. She's going to continue um, her presentation on how diabetes affects all parts of the body. Um, and we're gonna save some time to do a question and answer session at the end. So please keep yourselves muted throughout the call. And then at the end, when we announce um, for questions or whatnot, you can raise your little hand in, in your device and we will hopefully get to call on you to ask your questions. So Abby, if you're ready, you can gladly take it away. All right. So if I recall correctly, um, I believe we left off. I don't think we talked about diabetic kidney disease. Does anyone else remember? I believe that's where we left off. Any memories? I think, I think you're correct. Okay, perfect. Thank you. All right. Um, so the way I kind of like to think about diabetic kidney disease, um, I kind of picture the kidneys. Uh, so their main job is to filter our body of waste products um, and extra fluids. So the way I kind of think of the kidney is kind of like a coffee filter. So picturing that filter there in the coffee maker where you scoop out your grounds or you make your grounds and then they go into the filter. We filter water through that and then we get that brown coffee liquid. That's basically what the kidneys are supposed to do as well. They're supposed to let certain aspects of um, waste products and fluids out of our blood. Um, but the, the filtration of the kidney can become damaged after experiencing um, high blood sugar for a long period of time. Um, so what can happen to that filter in the kidney is that basically, the kidneys can end up allowing extra bits and pieces, if you will, through that filter. So kind of what happens is the high blood sugar molecules um, end up poking holes in that filter. And instead of only letting out those waste products and the extra fluids and the sugar, it ends up allowing protein to leak into our urine, which is a term called microalbuminuria, which means small albumin um, in the urine. And that's kind of the protein um, that the providers will typically look for. Um, this protein poking holes, or I should say coming through the holes in the filter, um, end up creating larger and larger holes in that filter, which allows more and more protein to leak into the urine. Um, the higher the amount of protein that's found in the urine, the more progressive that form of kidney disease is considered. Uh, so diabetic kidney disease is also known as something called nephropathy. That's N-E-P-H-R-O-P-A-T-H-Y, nephropathy. Um, and really with kidney disease, early identification is really essential to preventing that progression. Um, and really the first sign that providers will often look for is protein in the urine. 
Um, so typically every year as part of someone's annual exam, um, your provider may ask you to urinate into a cup and basically what they're going to do is check to see if and how much protein there is in the urine. Anything over 30 milligrams over the course of a 24 hour period um, is considered to be microalbuminuria, which means that there is more protein in the urine that we would, than we would like to see. Um, really that early identification being so essential is important because there's often really no symptoms of kidney disease, especially in that early stage. Um, and so that progressive um, decline can start happening before someone ever really physically experiences any difference. Um, so your healthcare provider will typically check your urine for microalbumin at least annually. And then they can also do a couple of blood tests that look at the kidney function as well. So your doctor can look for your blood levels of creatinine, blood urea nitrogen or BUN. And they'll also do a test that's called the EGFR, which stands for estimated glomerular filtration rate. And what that is, is it's really looking at how well your kidneys are filtering. The lower that EGFR, the uh, more progressed someone's kidney disease typically has become. Individuals with type 2 diabetes will typically have these labs done at diagnosis and then every year thereafter. Someone with type 1 diabetes typically will get these labs first done five years after their initial diagnosis and then every year. The difference in screening comes from the fact that oftentimes people with type 2 diabetes have had blood sugar issues for a longer period of time before they're actually diagnosed. So we want to screen them as soon as they get their diagnosis because chances are they may have a little bit of kidney issue already because they've had a longer standing um, higher blood sugar um, situation in the background. Uh, diabetic kidney disease is diagnosed in stages. So in total, there are five stages of kidney disease. <clears throat> Stage one is really where the kidneys are filtering more than what we would consider normal. That filtration rate is normal or sometimes even slightly elevated because the kidneys are trying to work harder to compensate for that higher blood sugar. Stage two happens when that filtration is over, or that overfiltration continues to happen. But in stage two, the rate at which the filtration is happening begins to slow slightly. Once we get to stage three kidney disease, we have a moderate decrease in that filtration rate. And this is when we really start to see more protein in the urine somewhere typically between about 30 and 300 milligrams over the course of a 24 hour period. Someone with stage three kidney disease may start to have some other medical issues contributing as well, or things that we may see in conjunction with the kidney disease. Primarily with stage three kidney disease, we may see some anemia. Once we get to stage four kidney disease, we'll see severe decrease in the filtration rate. We'll see large amounts of protein in the urine. Typically now we're talking about 300 milligrams over the course of that 24 hour period. And this may be when we start to see other issues um, in terms of different vitamins, minerals, um, having trouble regulating in the blood. So we might have trouble with potassium and phosphorus levels as well. Now, typically we don't like to restrict someone's food intake or 
we don't like to say, oh, limit all of your potassium and phosphorus foods unless someone starts to have those elevated labs. So if someone's coming into the office for nutrition counseling and they have kidney disease and their potassium levels are elevated, we're going to start to talk to you about how to choose lower potassium foods or same thing with the phosphorus. But if you're just coming in for nutrition counseling with a history of kidney disease, but your potassium and phosphorus levels are normal, we're still going to be encouraging you to have the most varied diet that we can, because we know the benefit of all of those various fruits, vegetables, protein foods that are going to provide those nutrients for you. Once we get to stage five kidney disease, this is what we consider to be kidney failure. And this is when the kidneys truly are not able to filter the blood the way they should. So we're typically going to start to talk about something called renal replacement therapy. We're going to talk through what some of the different options are. Most of the time, when we are progressing towards even stage three, stage four kidney disease, most providers are starting to have that conversation with the patients about, you know, what is it going to look like when we get to stage five? What is your plan going to be? Because we want to have the tools in place for you to utilize whatever your renal replacement therapy is going to be before we end up really needing that. Once we hit that stage five of kidney disease, typically we're talking about either some type of dialysis or kidney transplantation. If we go the route of kidney transplantation, there's typically a longer lead time for that. And this is really, really rarely we're talking about replacing the diseased kidneys with a healthy kidney from usually a donor. Um, it could be a blood relative, it could be a random donor, um, but this is where we, we put a healthy kidney into the body we attach that to um, the bladder, to the blood vessels, and then this healthy kidney has really replaced what the damaged kidneys are no longer able to do. Like I said, there's usually a longer lead time for transplant. So generally we're talking about some type of dialysis even leading up to that. Hemodialysis is when our blood is cleaned outside of our body. So someone will go to a dialysis facility, They'll get hooked up to a dial dialysis machine. And this is when the blood is removed from our body, typically through a fistula. And it's cleaned in the machine. And then the machine puts that blood back into our body. Typically, a dialysis session happens about three times a week for about three to four hours. So it's a significant chunk of your time. Um, but dialysis is very effective for individuals who need that. Individuals on hemodialysis do typically have to follow a fairly strict meal plan because their kidneys aren't able to continuously filter their blood throughout the day. So we're typically talking about choosing low potassium, low phosphorus foods, um, limiting certain types of fruits and vegetables, really being careful with nuts and milk products because the kidneys aren't filtering the blood. And so we can sometimes see that some of those minerals are um, loading up in the body, which can cause other problems. So we're trying to keep that pretty stable. The other type of dialysis that some individuals are candidates for is something called peritoneal dialysis. So this is when the blood is cleaned inside the body through the membrane that lines the abdominal cavity, the peritoneum. This can be done at home, at work, while you're traveling. 
Um, basically what happens is someone puts a dialysate um, solution, which is uh, basically what's gonna clean the blood. They insert that into their abdomen through a catheter and then using um, osmosis, which means the um, dialysate comes in contact with the blood or through this abdominal cavity lining and the extra blood products are flowing into the dialysate and that is then going to be taken out of the body and that is how we are cleaning the blood. So it's a little more complicated. Um, it involves someone being able to insert and then remove that dialysate solution. So it's not really the right option for everyone with kidney failure, um, but I have worked with a couple of individuals in my diabetes experience who this was a great opportunity for. So one person that I worked with was a cab driver. And so he relied on being active and out of the house and kind of on his own schedule for his lifestyle. Um, and so hemodialysis three times a week for four hours really wasn't gonna fit his life. Um, so fortunately he was in good enough health that the peritoneal dialysis was an option for him. The biggest things that we want to remember, again, about all of these um, complications that we talk about is prevention. So what can we do to prevent these kidney problems? First and foremost, really we wanna think about our blood sugar management. So getting those blood sugars to the targets that you and your providers agree upon and keeping them there. The sooner in your diabetes journey that we're able to do that, the longer term benefits you're gonna see in this prevention of in the instance we're talking about now, kidney problems. With kidney disease, though, it's also very important for us to make sure that we are managing blood pressure issues as well. High blood pressure can also slow um, the filtration rate as well. So someone who has diabetes and high blood pressure kind of has a double elevated risk for chronic kidney disease. So we want to make sure that we are managing both of those. Um, cholesterol management can make a difference here as well. Um, the presence of protein in the urine, that microalbuminuria, is also a risk factor for developing cardiovascular disease or heart disease. So cholesterol management can help to keep the heart and the kidneys healthy. And then if a provider does detect that someone has this anemia, um, treating that anemia when it is found early treatment of that really does help improve the outcomes that someone sees with diabetic kidney disease so we really want that routine annual screening of those um, the microalbumin in the urine we really want to make sure that we're checking those blood values for the kidneys and then on top of that also managing blood sugar and blood pressure because chronic kidney disease is something that a lot of people with diabetes are affected by in some stage and so we really want to make sure that if we are diagnosed with that we are trying to do everything that we can to slow that progression so after our kidney disease here, we're gonna shift gears slightly. We're gonna come north on your body ever so slightly. And we're gonna talk a little bit here about dental problems with diabetes. And this is one that I think a lot of us don't necessarily realize is or can be um, impacted by blood sugar management. So basically here, elevated blood sugar increases the onset, frequency, progression, and severity of our oral problems and specifically gum disease. So one of the things that we see can often be a, um, an issue here with high blood sugar is that when the sugar is high in our blood, the sugar is also high in the saliva. And so 
high sugar in the saliva can feed the harmful bacteria in our mouth. And this harmful bacteria can combine with our food that we eat to create plaque. And so plaque is that buildup on your teeth that when you go to the dentist, they're always telling you about flossing to keep that plaque from building up. They take that uh, tool or the water fixture and they're kind of blasting that plaque off of your teeth. And the reason is that plaque leads to cavities. And so that in that little cavity can be seen as an infection. And when someone's blood sugar is high, it's harder for us to fight that infection. But then also plaque can harden on our teeth and it can harden into something called tartar, which is typically at our gum level. And that tartar at the gum level can cause gum disease. So high blood sugar really here can lead to a lot of those different um, oral issues that we may see. Oral infections, so here we're talking about the gum disease or um, periodontitis, which is an actual inflammation and infection of the gums, even something as minimal as a cavity, these oral infections can also worsen our blood sugar control. So high blood sugar can lead to these problems, and then these problems can also elevate the blood sugar further. So we really want to be doing everything that we can at home in between our dental visits in order to be caring for our teeth the best that we can. Treatment of oral problems can actually, independent of anything else, lower our hemoglobin A1C. So we do want to be seeing the dentist typically twice a year, um, if not more often, like they may recommend. So as I mentioned, periodontitis, which is another um, word that we may use for gum disease, is really the most common mouth problem related to diabetes. But what happens is, um, plaque and tartar can start to build up along the gum line, which leads to irritation and swelling. Typically, this is something that we call gingivitis. So this is where we may see red, swollen gums. They may bleed easily while we're brushing or flossing. This is really based in inflammation from the plaque and the tartar building up along that gum line. As this progresses, as this gets more and more significant, um, this can lead to what we call periodontitis. And so kind of what happens is that plaque, that tartar, end up keeping the healthy gum from attaching well to the teeth. So it isn't able to really secure the tooth as well in the gum and the bone. And so what happens is the gum starts pulling away from the teeth because it can't uh, kind of solidify itself on there due to the plaque and the tartar. When the gums pull away from the teeth, it forms pockets. And so food and other particles can get stuck in those pockets and then they can get infected. So I don't know if you can think back to the last time you went to the dentist. I don't know if they did the periodontitis check, but I know when I go to the dentist, they take this little tool and they run it along all of the gums in certain spots. And I hear the, the dental tech saying to the, the dentist different numbers. So they might say two, three, four. Um, what they're saying there is how many millimeters they're able to put that little probe up under your gum. And the further under your gum they're able to get that little probe, the more risk you have for periodontitis, the more your gum has pulled away from your teeth. So once that food and, and other products can get stuck 
in there, bacteria um, come to this area, infection can begin. And unfortunately, that infection can actually end up leading to breakdown of the bone that holds your teeth in place. So tooth can become loose, they may fall out or they may need to be removed because these deep pockets are there. There's infection and that bone can end up um, really disappearing. So flossing, brushing your teeth, getting those dental exams are very, very important because we're really able to kind of course correct if we see those things starting to happen. Another mouth problem that can be common with diabetes is dry mouth or xerostomia. Um, some symptoms of dry mouth can be cracked, chapped lips. We may see bad breath because we aren't able to really flush our mouth as well. We may see mouth sores, rough tongue, trouble chewing, swallowing, talking, again, because we just don't have enough saliva in there to do all the normal functions of um, our oral cavity. So saliva itself helps to break down our food a bit. It helps to control the bacteria level in our mouth. It strengthens our teeth and rinses our teeth. So dry mouth really can be associated with more cavities, gum disease, those oral infections. We can see more plaque building up. We can even see fungal or yeast infections in the mouth, also known as candidiasis, because we don't have that flushing happening the way we would normally expect it to happen. So dry mouth, if you have that, definitely make sure you're talking to your provider or your dental care provider because we want to make sure we're doing what we can. They may prescribe um, some medications. They may prescribe special uh, mouthwashes. We want to make sure we're talking about that so that we're able to address that problem. Preventing all of our dental problems, though, again, does come down to blood sugar management. So we want to make sure we're doing what we can to manage those sugars. We want to be brushing our teeth and flossing ideally twice a day. I know it's not always the easiest thing, but we do want to be trying to do that both twice a day. You can use an antiseptic mouthwash, uh, something like Listerine or even the store brand is fine um, because that's going to help to, again, cleanse your mouth. Ideally, we would wait 30 minutes after eating before we brush our teeth because sometimes our food that we eat can actually soften our tooth enamel. So if we brush too soon, we can actually be doing a little bit more damage than we want. If you're someone who wears dentures or partials, you definitely want to make sure you're removing them and cleaning them daily, just like you would your other teeth. Um, and you also want to make sure that you are continuing to see an oral care provider because we would want to address any changes in that gum or I'm sorry, in that bone in your mouth, um, because sometimes that can change and then your dentures or your partials aren't fitting correctly and that can lead to other problems as well. If you are someone who's a smoker, we also recommend trying to work on quitting because smoking truly increases the risk of a lot of these diabetes complications, but it especially can dry your mouth out and therefore lead to some more of these oral problems as well. Typically, we're going to recommend also seeing our oral care provider, um, our dentist, at least twice a year, but I do know that sometimes your provider may recommend you coming in more often depending on what's going on in your mouth. Now, we also want to consider how diabetes can affect our skin as well. And 
our skin is really our largest organ. So we wanna make sure that if our diabetes is affecting our skin, we're doing everything that we can to make sure that we are managing whatever conditions we may um, experience. So what happens here typically is that diabetes can affect the small blood vessels that feed um, our skin with blood. And that can lead to impaired wound healing. So we can end up seeing cuts taking longer to heal. Um, longer to heal typically means higher risk of infection. And high blood sugars also make it harder for us to fend off that harmful bacteria that's already naturally present on our skin. So a cut that stays open longer, again, higher risk for infection and our body with high blood sugar has a harder time preventing that infection from happening. And then also a harder time fighting that infection off once it has happened. So people with diabetes typically have an increased risk of bacterial and fungal infections of the skin. So we'll talk about a couple of types that we can see. Um, something as minimal as a sty, S-T-Y-E, which is an infection of the gland of the eyelid. I know I used to get these as a little kid sometimes, um, you know, where your eyelid kind of puffs up in one spot. It's, it's red. Um, some people may see some pus coming out of there, but that's a higher risk for someone with diabetes. Um, we may have something called folliculitis, which is an infection of the hair follicles. So the hairs on your skin, you may see feel um, little red bumps. Um, and those can be signs of uh, folliculitis or that infection there. A little bit more um, significant is something called a carbuncle. Um, and this is a deep infection of the skin and the tissue underneath um, that top layer of our outer skin. Um, this is where the hair can get infected. It may start as like a little pimple. It can progress to a boil, which is a little bit, um, you know, a more significant pus uh, collection, a little bit more redness um, and pimple-like on the outside. And then a carbuncle is really a cluster of boils. So we're seeing multiple hairs affected. We're seeing a large amount of pus building up there. And of course, if this erupts, we have an increased risk for additional infection. Um, people with diabetes also, also can have a um, greater chance for even something as seemingly minimal as infections around the nails. So if we're getting manicures or pedicures, we're getting an increased risk of exposure to cuts to other bacteria, um, and that can commonly cause an infection as well. Generally, um, these bacterial infections of the skin that we see are typically caused by Staphylococcus, which is a very commonly found bacteria on the skin. But again, if we have an entry point for that infection, um, or I'm sorry, that bacteria to get into the skin, into the bloodstream, that's when we start to see this higher risk for these bacterial infections. Oftentimes what we're gonna see or feel is a hot, swollen, red, kind of painful area. The larger it is, typically the greater the infection. Um, but if you ever feel a warm, um, painful um, area of your skin, have somebody check it out, especially a provider, so that we can get you treated with antibiotics from that healthcare team as needed. Pretty common fungal infections as well can be seen. Um, generally, we're talking about fungal infections occurring in like warm or moist folds of skin. 
Um, so we may be talking about between the fingers and toes areas that don't necessarily dry very well on their own. Um, for women, we may be talking about under breasts. Um, we may even be talking about like folds of skin at the hips or the, the abdomen um, or even kind of the, the love handle type area. Um, corners of the mouth, armpits, groin, all of these areas can be affected by fungal infections. Um, generally, like we said, those bacterial infections are typically caused by staphylococcus. Fungal infections are generally caused by Candida albicans, which is a common yeast-like fungus that is found on skin. Most common fungal infections that we talk about seeing on individuals with diabetes are things like athlete's foot. Um, we may see ringworm. And really, fairly commonly, um, I see individuals struggling with genital yeast infections. Um, I would say in my experience, this is typically a greater risk for females as opposed to males. Um, but especially I have seen some gentlemen um, struggling with a, a fungal, uh, I'm sorry, a yeast infection. Um, certain medications for diabetes that we would consider to be um, called SGLT2 inhibitors. So here we're talking about medications like Barsega, Invokana, Stiglatro, and I'm totally blanking on that fourth one. Um, Barsega, Invokana, I'm not going to think of it at the moment. Um, but those types of medications um, target the kidneys and help them to put more sugar out into the urine. So those medications can be common um, to cause yeast infections um, simply because we do have more yeast-like um, uh, fungus in that area. And so fungus, bacteria, favorite food is sugar. And so if we're urinating out more sugar, those things again are pretty common. If you do experience um, these rashes um, or these yeast-like fungus infections, typically we're seeing um, reddened areas. They may be surrounded by blisters or scales. You may see kind of flaking skin. You may feel that skin come off when you're drying or um, you know, taking your feet, or I'm sorry, taking your socks off. You may have itchiness. Um, all of these can be signs of those yeast-like or fungal infections. And if you experience any of that, definitely, again, have a conversation with your healthcare provider because they can get you the correct treatment that you may need. For skincare, again, blood sugar management, obviously very important, but we also want to think about our skincare itself. So we want to be sure that we are keeping our skin um, clean and dry. So especially those areas that sometimes moisture likes to hang out in. So we may be talking about our feet, um, again, those folds of the skin, our underarms. We want to make sure that we're cleansing those areas and then drying them very well. Um, if we are doing any type of showering or bathing, we wanna make sure that when we are drying our body, we are really making sure we're drying in between the toes as well, because that area doesn't typically dry as well on its own. You may wanna avoid extremely hot baths or showers because that can additionally dry out your skin. Um, and I didn't even necessarily talk about dry skin in and of itself, but a lot of times people with diabetes experience very dry and cracked skin. I see it a lot for individuals on the heels of their feet, especially. Um, and, you know, as soon as the skin cracks, it becomes more open for bacteria then to get into the body. Um, so 
dry, hot environments um, can really lead to additional cracking of the skin, which again is an entry point for infection. It is absolutely recommended to use lotions to prevent or treat that dry skin. Um, we just don't recommend putting that lotion in between those toes, again, because that area of the body really doesn't dry very well on its own. If you experience a cut, a scratch, a blister, make sure you're treating it right away. So making sure you're cleaning it, trying to keep it dry, um, away from other um, you know, potential risks in terms of infection. But it's also really important to talk to your doctor or a dermatologist, depending on the issue that you're experiencing, because you may need additional treatment. Um, so they may recommend certain ointments for your skin um, issues and things like that. Um, as we talked before about foot care, taking care of our feet is very, very important, especially because they're a very distant part of our body from the heart. So blood flow can be affected there. So we really want to use our sensation as protection in our feet. And if that sensation is altered at all, we wanna really rely on someone else for assistance in terms of checking our feet every day. Um, you can use your hands, but if we have any trouble visualizing the feet, we would want to get some assistance so that we can really stay on top of any possible um, cuts, sores, blisters, things like that. It's not recommended for women to use any like feminine hygiene products to clean um, the genital area. Those can kind of interrupt the normal kind of flora on the skin. So simply using a regular soap is really what we would recommend. And again, if you have questions or any concerns, talking to your doctor or a dermatologist is also strongly recommended. Now, the last two quote unquote complications that we're going to talk about aren't necessarily caused by diabetes or vice versa. These issues don't necessarily cause diabetes, but we commonly see that people with diabetes also struggle um, with these two um, other, maybe we'll say comorbidities. So things that can also be an issue along with diabetes. So the first that we're going to talk about is actually called obstructive sleep apnea. Some people may just call it sleep apnea for short. Um, and individuals with diabetes and or those who carry extra weight and would be considered overweight or obese do have a higher risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, what basically can happen here is that um, we'll say tissue in the back of the mouth or the neck um, can actually relax to the extent in during sleep that it relaxes and actually blocks the airway. Um, so what's supposed to happen is that we're breathing through our nose and our mouth, that airflow goes down um, past our tongue, past our soft palate, past the uvula, gets into our lungs, and then we can get that extra oxygen over through the other parts of our body. During sleep apnea, that tongue, that soft palate, the uvula can all kind of collapse, if you will, which blocks the airflow. So Obstructive sleep apnea is when we have occasional pauses in breathing or shallow breathing at a slow rate during sleep. Um, diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea kind of negatively impact each other. So treating our breathing problems can actually help improve our diabetes management because these breathing problems during sleep cause a poor quality of sleep or just a lack of sleep. 
which increases the stress on the body. And then those stress hormones increase our blood sugar. So if someone has obstructive sleep apnea and requires treatment, but they don't get it, typically we see that they have higher blood sugars, especially in the morning time. So um, a few treatment options can um, are out there for obstructive sleep apnea. Um, I don't know that all of them are equally used. Um, surgery is an option I can think in my, let's see, in my seven years of working specifically as a diabetes educator, I've had one piece have surgery for obstructive sleep apnea um, specifically where tissue was removed from that area of his body to help unblock the airway. But some individuals could actually consider weight loss surgery, a treatment for obstructive sleep apnea as well. Um, sometimes weight loss can help to alleviate the pressure on the airway during sleep, and therefore that can help to reduce or um, eliminate that obstructive sleep apnea. So we don't even have to be talking weight loss surgery, simply someone being successful with um, individual weight loss um, can also help to improve obstructive sleep apnea. Some individuals will use what we consider to be oral appliances. So really here we're talking like a mouth guard. Um, and these things can be can help to position the lower jaw really um, in such a way that it prevents the blockage of that airway. I would say probably the vast majority of individuals that I work with who have obstructive sleep apnea are really using something called continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP which helps to continuously push um, air through that airway to keep it open, um, which helps to keep the uh, structures in that part of the body from collapsing and blocking the airway. Some signs or symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea would be things like snoring, waking with a sore throat or a headache, um, you know, sleepiness throughout the day. If you think you have any of these things, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have obstructive sleep apnea. So talking to your doctor about that would be something that we would recommend. The last bit that we'll talk about here in terms of our complications um, is the interplay between diabetes and psychological problems. So here we're really mainly talking about depression and anxiety. Um, so again, one doesn't necessarily cause the other, but as we can generally kind of commonly think, diabetes and depression and anxiety really can be very much related to each other. Uh, and so detection and treatment for these, we'll say mental health struggles is really very, very important for achieving our other health goals. Um, depression is twice as common in individuals with diabetes compared to um, the non-diabetes population. Some signs or symptoms of depression could include loss of interest or loss of pleasure in things that used to make us happy, um, lack of energy, changes in our sleep patterns or our appetite. Um, individuals may feel really guilty, nervous, or sad a lot of the time have thoughts of hurting themselves and or hurting others, withdrawing from our friends, family, and activities. These can all be signs or symptoms of depression. And truly here, treating the depression is generally, in my opinion, step number one um, before even trying to make any changes from a diabetes perspective. Um, depression in all degrees is associated with harder um, 
or I should say difficulty with making changes when it comes to eating habits and exercise, um, taking medications, checking our blood sugar. Because if we aren't able to mentally get there and set goals, or even if we are able to set those goals, we might not be able to really follow through on them. So I often will have conversations with the people that I work with and goal number one might be, let's talk to a mental health provider or let's get into some counseling and work through some of these feelings that we're experiencing. Because if we aren't treating and managing the depression, chances are that diabetes that we could talk about aren't necessarily going to be super successful. Um, so. At my center, we're very much um, proponents of the mental health piece because it makes such a difference um, in the diabetes management realm. If you feel like you might have signs or symptoms of depression, talking to your doctor is really step number one. Um, if they decide to prescribe medications, we would recommend trying them. Um, having conversations about what some of those side effects might be is also obviously very important. Um, you may find benefit from talking with a therapist or a counselor um, or even finding a diabetes self-management program in your area and um, finding a diabetes support group. I know a lot of them are more available in a virtual perspective now, um, post slash during the COVID pandemic that we're still in. Um, but finding that support and managing diabetes with others, getting ideas from others can often help with some of that depression or feelings of aloneness as well. Um, there's also something specifically called diabetes distress, which is when we feel discouraged, worried, frustrated, or even just tired of dealing with daily diabetes care. Because, you know, I, I say to a lot of people that I work with, you know, I don't know anyone who says, yes, I will please take diabetes. Give me this medical condition where I have to check my blood sugar. I have to take one or more medications, maybe multiple times a day. I have to think about what I'm eating. I'm supposed to be active. I'm supposed to, you know, do all of these different things. And it's a lot. And, you know, your provider wants to see you doing all of those things, but truly we have to talk about what's realistic for your life. Um, diabetes distress may look like depression. So you may experience some of those same symptoms, but diabetes distress is not treated with medications the way depression could be biggest way to talk through and get through diabetes distress is to talk with your diabetes care team, your diabetes educator, or even a health counselor who specializes in chronic diseases or in diabetes specifically. At our center, we really feel as though diabetes distress is overcome by setting small, reasonable care goals. So I often will kind of recommend people not set three to five goals after a diabetes session. Like sure, you may want to set some food goals, exercise goals, medication goals, blood sugar monitoring goals, but let's think about what's most important to you right now. What is your biggest diabetes goal and what are we going to do to get there? You know, we can work on three, four, five different things, but oftentimes if we focus on one or maybe two at a time, we're going to make more overall progress and then you're going to feel more successful. So small, reasonable goals is really what we recommend. And then, of course, finding your support system. So whether it's family members, whether it's, you know, people in your community, whether it's the American Council for the Blind, um, Diabetes and Action Group, all of these ways are all of these um, systems are great ways for you to get support for your diabetes that you're looking for because you are not alone in this journey and having that support system is really going to be key for a lot of people 
when it comes to managing this long-term. So as I said, obstructive sleep apnea and the mental health type piece aren't necessarily what I would consider to be complications of diabetes, but we often see diabetes related to those two conditions. And so it's good for us to talk about how they can have that connection as well. So that wraps up the complications that I set out to talk about today. Um, I would love to open it up to questions that you guys might have and things that you might be wondering related to diabetes management. That First of all, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, you're very thorough, and I very much appreciate that. So at this time, I guess, Allison, do we have any hands raised? We do, and if I may very quickly, Liz, I'd like to run through the instru- instructions for raising hands and uh, yes, please. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, first of all, let me remind everyone that these calls are being uh, recorded for our safety and security. So, therefore, you'll need to press the "Got It" button for the recording before you can do these commands. So, if you were on a PC, you can raise or lower your hand by pressing Alt Y, mute or unmute by pressing Alt-A. If you're on a Mac, you can raise or lower your hand with Option Y, mute or unmute with Command Shift A. If you're on your smart device, the raised hand option is located under the More button, which is in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. And the Mute Unmute button is located in the lower left-hand corner of your screen. And if you're on a standard uh, touch-tone phone, you can raise or lower your hand with star nine or mute or unmute with star six. Okay, and our first raised hand is area code 626 ending in 106. If you may unmute and identify yourself and then ask your question. Hi, this Thank is you, Charles. Uh, I have a problems with my heels, um, especially on the left side, but it's cracking and, and some soreness. Is there any specific cream that you would recommend for that problem? That's a great question. Um, And really, there isn't a specific brand um, that's going to be any better than something else. Um, There are some lotions out there that are going to market themselves as very specific for diabetes, but there really isn't anything different in those than just your standard run-of-the-mill body lotion um, or one that may um, market itself as for like extra dry or cracked skin. Um, but really it's, I mean, store brand would be just as good as something that may be much more expensive. Well, what brands are good? Really? But, any, yeah. I was just going to say, it's, from what Abby's saying, it sounds like they're all equally good, meaning you could buy store brand or name brand and it really wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. And what well, I, I understand say, oh. that. I understand that. But I don't know any particular brands of myself. So what you could do would be to go to your local pharmacy um, and ask them to maybe direct you to the area of the store that has, um, you know, lotion specifically for dry skin, um, as opposed to something that um, is just for, you know, maybe maintenance lotion. Um there are, like I said, there are some brands um, that have like specific diabetes ones. So I know like Gold Bond has a diabetic dry skin relief. Um, CeraVe, which is C-E-R-A-V-E, has a diabetic dry skin relief as well. Um, 
but there are going to be, you know, if you get a vino, uh, cortisone may have one, um, you know, again, just your Vaseline essential healing would be fine. Um, it doesn't have to be a specific brand. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful. Allison, are there more hands? Yes, we do have more. Uh, Liz, our next up is Marty. Um, hi, Marty. Hi. Yeah, hi. Um, I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse or not, but I know you mentioned um, sleep apnea. And I was wondering, um, do you have an opinion on whether you think like, because my, my pulmonologist, you know, was, was definite in his opinion, but whether you think like a CPAP is better than that Inspire. And when I asked him, he said that that Inspire, you know what the Inspire is, is where you don't have a yes. CPAP. It's, it's a surgery where um, I think they put something in your throat that like shocks your, mm. sends like a real mild shock to your uvula or something. He just told me it was not um, as good as CPAP. Yeah, and really, I would defer to his expertise in that realm. Um, I, I have only recently heard of the Inspire. Um, I'm not really familiar with any of like the research behind it. Um, so I definitely would defer to the pulmonologist in that perspective. Um, he is definitely going to know a lot more than I would. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Great, thank you. Any more hands? Yes. Uh, Debbie, you are up next, and we have 11 minutes. So. Yes, Go ahead. Hi. Um, I found this um, information very helpful, but I missed last week. Is there any way I can get that? Yeah, I would be more than fine um, sharing. I, do, I think we recorded last time as well, um, but I also can share. I do have like some PowerPoint slides that I speak from, um, so I can absolutely share them with the you know leaders of the group if they wanted to distribute them. Okay. Debbie, this is Tom. The to Debbie, this the the um, June uh, community call was recorded, and I'm pretty sure Larry, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're available through the ACB Media Podcast segment. So you can okay. go back on acb.org and try and find them there. Yeah, they're up there now. Okay. They should be. They're Not correct, Larry. <laughs> I said, if, if they aren't up there, let me know they should be by now. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Great. How about another hand? Okay. Next we have, oh, I hope I pronounced this right, uh, Kamakoa Hunter. Oh, please correct me. <laughs> Go ahead. Hello. Hello. You may, you may talk. I was wondering if you have any resources in Maui, Hawaii for diabetes. So I don't know of any specifically. Um, the the place that I generally recommend people go to um, is diabetes.org. Um, and this is the American Association, I'm sorry, the American Diabetes Association's webpage. Um, and they are able to help you find, I, I don't know the exact like where to click and, and what to look for specifically. So usually what I do is I just go to Google and I type in, uh, you know, diabetes, uh, American Diabetes Association, like find a program. 
um, because they are generally able to direct you to um, the diabetes education programs that are registered with them in your state. Um, so that may help you connect to someone who's closer to you. Um, and then you'd be able to hopefully find somebody to work with in terms of a diabetes educator. Thank you. That's excellent information to know, even for people um, in the, the mainland of the US. Yeah. That's uh, really helpful. Thank you so much. Okay, we have one more raised hand right now. Uh, Verlin, you can go ahead. Verlin, you're okay. There you are. Okay, great. Okay. Um, I wanted to know if the holes that you mentioned earlier that can appear in the kidneys, can that be repaired by the body in any way? That is a great question. And to my knowledge, it cannot. Um, so really with kidney disease, if and when it's diagnosed, the biggest focus becomes on prevention of progression of kidney disease. Um, so especially early on, if someone is found to have any of that urine or I'm sorry, uh, protein in the urine, like microalbumin area, um, there are some medications, even something as simple as a couple of blood pressure medications can be prescribed to help protect the kidneys. Because to my knowledge, there is not a way for us to quote unquote, heal the kidneys once that um, damage is done. Okay. And the other thing I wondered is if the blood pressure or excuse me, blood sugar is high, is there any relationship to coughing? So my only thought would be if it's related to infection specifically. So um, if someone has higher blood sugars and an infection sets in, um, specifically if we're talking about like flu or pneumonia or something like that, um, having high blood sugars can make it harder for the body to fight said infection. Um, so we could experience coughing longer than someone maybe without diabetes, but high blood sugar specifically on its own, independent of anything else, should not, in my opinion, or in my experience, um, cause coughing, like I said, all on its own. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Fantastic. This is going so well. Um, Allison, do we have any more hands? No raised hands at this time, Liz. Great. Well, I will just, I want to thank you again, Abby. If other people still have a question or two, feel free to raise your hand. I just want to send a big thank you from all of us at ACBDA for coming out and speaking with us for two months in a row. You are fabulous. My pleasure. I'm happy to do it. Well, and this is Liz. Or this is Tom, Liz, and I just wanted to say thank you to Abby for once again being our presenter tonight. Did another great job tonight. Um, I want to thank our host, Allison Smitherman, who I know is dealing with uh, COVID in her household, as are others of us. Um, Liz, great job being our facilitator tonight. And um, since we're kind of running out of time, I'd like to give a little um, information about ACBDA. Uh, if you're interested in joining the organization, we'd love to have you. Uh, you can go to our website at uh, www.acbda.org and there is a completely accessible membership form um, and uh, inclusive of the uh, link to 
to uh, pay for your $10 membership dues um, using PayPal. So we'd love to have you join us. And if you have any questions or if you have issues uh, with the membership form or, or the website, as my phone freaks out, that was weird. Um, please, please send an email to uh, <laughs> acbdaorg at gmail.com. That's acbdaorg at gmail.com. And we'd be happy to get back to you with whatever questions you have. And, um, you know, I guess we will uh, sign off here in a few minutes and we'll see you all in August. <laughs>